This is a Bulldog Radio podcast. It is later than you think. Open up your mind's eye and prepare yourself for SpectraVision. Episode of SpectraVision. I'm your host, Gabriel Walker. Today, we will be hearing two stories, one from the future and one from the past, both about change, life, and death. But most importantly, they are stories about pain, voluntary and otherwise. And so we begin with our first story, A Hunger Artist, by Franz Kafka, read by Patience Booker. During these last decades, the interest in professional fasting has markedly diminished. It used to pay very well to stage such great performances under one's own management, but today that is quite impossible. We live in a different world now. At one time, the whole town took a lively interest in the hunger artist. From day to day of his fast, the excitement mounted. Everybody wanted to see him at least once a day. There were people who bought season tickets for the last few days and sat from morning till night in front of his small, barred cage. Even in the nighttime, there were visiting hours, when the whole effect was heightened by torch flares. On fine days, the cage was set out in the open air, and it was the children's special treat to see the hunger artist. For the elders, he was often just a joke that happened to be in fashion. But the children stood, open mouthed, holding each other's hands for greater security, marveling at him as he sat there, paled in black tights, with his ribs sticking out so prominently, not even on a seat, but down among straw on the ground. Sometimes he gave a courteous nod, answering questions with a constrained smile, or perhaps stretching an arm through the bars so that one might feel how thin he was. And then again, withdrawing deep into himself, paying no attention to anyone or anything, not even to the all-important striking of the clock that was the only piece of furniture in his cage, but merely staring into vacancy with half-shut eyes, now and then taking a sip from the tiny glass of water to moisten his lips. but merely staring into vacancy with half-shut eyes, now and then taking a sip from a tiny glass of water to moisten his lips. Besides casual onlookers, there were also relays of permanent watchers selected by the public, 
usually butchers, strangely enough. And it was their task to watch the hunger artists day and night, three of them at a time. This was nothing but a formality, instigated to reassure the masses, for the initiates knew well enough that during his fast, the artist would never, in any circumstances, not even under forcible compulsion, swallow the smallest morsel of food. The honor of his profession forbade it. Not every watcher, of course, was capable of understanding this. There are often groups of night watchers who are very lax in carrying out their duties and deliberately huddled together in a retired corner to play cards with great absorption, obviously intending to give the hunger artist the chance of a little refreshment, which they supposed he would draw from some private hoard. Nothing annoyed the artist more than these watchers. They made him miserable. They made his fast seem unendurable. Sometimes he mastered his feebleness sufficiently to sing during their watch for as long as he could keep going, to show them how unjust their suspicions were. But that was of little use. They only wondered at his cleverness in being able to fill his mouth even while singing. Much more to his taste were the watchers who sat up close to the bars, who were not content with the dim night lighting of the hall, but focused on him in the full glare of the electric pocket watch given to them by the impresario. The harsh light did not trouble him at all. In any case, he could never sleep properly. And he could always drowse a little. Whatever the light, at any hour, even when the hall was thronged with noisy onlookers. He was quite happy at the prospect of spending a sleepless night with such watchers. He was ready to exchange jokes with them, to tell them stories out of his nomadic life anything at all to keep them awake and demonstrate to them again that he had no eatables in his cage and that he was fasting as not one of them could fast. But his happiest moment was when the morning came and an enormous breakfast was brought for them at his expense on which they flung themselves with the keen appetite of a healthy man after a weary night of wakefulness. Of course, there are people who argue that this breakfast was an unfair attempt to bribe the watchers. But that was going rather too far. And when they were invited to take on a night's vigil without a breakfast, merely for the sake of the cause, they made themselves scarce. Although they stuck stubbornly to their suspicions. Such suspicions, anyhow, were a necessary accompaniment to the profession of fasting. No one could possibly watch the hunger artist continuously, day and night, and so no one could produce firsthand evidence that the fast had been rigorous and continuous. Only the artist himself could know that. He was therefore bound to be the sole, completely satisfied spectator of his own fast, yet for other reasons he was never satisfied. It was not perhaps mere fasting that had brought him to such skeleton thinness that many people had regretfully keep away from his exhibitions, because the sight of him was too much for them. Perhaps it was dissatisfaction with himself that had worn him down, for he alone knew what no other initiate knew, how easy it was to fast. It was the easiest thing in the world. He made no secret of this, yet people did not believe him. At best, they sat him down as modest. Most of them, however, thought he was out for publicity, or else was some kind of cheat who found it easy to fast because he had discovered 
a way of making it easy, and then had the impugnance to admit the fact more or less. He had to put up with all that. And in the course of time, I got used to it. But his inner dissatisfaction always rankled. And never yet, after any term of fasting, this must be granted to his credit, had he left the cage of his own free will. The longest period of fasting was fixed by his empresario at 40 days. Beyond that term, he was not allowed to go. Not even in great cities. And there was a good reason for it too. Experience had proven that for about 40 days, interest of the public could be stimulated by steady increasing pressure of advertisement. But after that, the town began to lose interest. Sympathetic support began notably to fall off. There were of course local variations as between one town and another or one country and another. But as a general rule, 40 days marked the limit. So on the 40th day, the flower beckoned cage was opened. Enthusiastic spectators filled the hall. A military band played. Two doctors entered the cage to measure the results of the fast, which were announced through a megaphone. And finally, two young ladies appeared, blissful at having been selected for the honor to help the hunger artist down the few steps, leading to a small table on which was a spread, carefully chosen, invalid repast. And at this very moment, the artist was always stubborn. True, he would entrust his bony arms to the outstretched helping hands of the ladies bending over him, but stand up, he would not. Why stop fasting at this particular moment, after 40 days of it? He had held out for a long time. Why stop now, when he was in his best fasting form, or rather, not yet quite in his best fasting form. Why should he be cheated of the fame he would get for fasting longer, for being not only the record hunger artist of all time, which presumably he already was, but for beating his own record by a performance beyond human imagination, since he felt that there was no limit to his capacity for fasting. His public pretended to admire him so much. Why should it have so little patience with him? If he could endure fasting longer, why shouldn't the public endure it? Besides, he was tired. He was comfortable sitting in the straw, and now he was supposed to lift himself to his full height and go down to a meal, the very thought of which gave him a nausea that only the presence of the ladies kept him from betraying. And even with an effort, he looked up into the eyes of the ladies who were apparently so friendly and in reality so cruel and shook his head, which felt too heavy on its own, strengthless neck. But then there happened again what always happened. The empresario came forward, without a word, for the band made speech impossible, lifted his arms in the air above the artist, as if inviting heaven to look down upon this creature here in the straw, this suffering martyr, which indeed he was, although in quite another sense, grasped him around the emancipated waist with exaggerated caution so that the frail condition he was in might be appreciated, and committed him to the care of the blenching ladies. Now without secretly giving him a shaking, so that his legs and body tottered and swayed, the artist now submitted completely. His head lolled on his breast, as if it had landed there by chance. His body was hollowed out, his legs in a spasm of self-preservation clung close to each other at the knees, scraped on the ground, as if they were only trying to find solid ground. And the whole weight of his body, a featherweight after all, relapsed onto one of the ladies, who, looking around for help and panting a little, this post of honor was not at all what she had expected it to be. First, stretched her neck as far as she could to keep her face at least free from contact with the artist. Then, finding this impossible, and her more fortunate companion 
not coming to her aid, but merely holding extended in her own trembling hand the little bunch of knuckle bones that was the artist's. To the great delight of the spectators, burst into tears and had to be replaced by an attendant who had long been stationed in readiness. Then came the food, a little of which the impresario managed to get between the artist's lips while he sat in a kind of half-fainting trance. To the accompaniment of cheerful patter designed to distract the public's attention for the artist's condition, after that, a toast was drunk to the public, supposedly prompted by the whisper from the artist in the impresario's ear. The band confirmed it with a mighty flourish. The spectators melted away, and no one had any cause to be dissatisfied with the proceedings. No one except the hunger artist himself. He only, as always. So he lived for many years, with regular, small intervals of recuperation. Invisible glory, honored by the world, yet in spite of that, troubled in spirit, and all the more troubled because no one would take his trouble seriously. What comfort could he possibly need? What more could he possibly wish for? And if some good-natured person, feeling sorry for him, tried to console him by pointing out that his melancholy was probably caused by fasting, it could happen, especially when he had been fasting for some time, that he reacted with an outburst of fury, until the general alarm began to shake the bars of his cage, like a wild animal. Yet, the impresario had a way of punishing these outbreaks, which he rather enjoyed putting into operation. He would apologize publicly for the artist's behavior, which was only to be excused. He admitted, because of the irritability caused by fasting, a condition hardly to be understood by well-fed people. Then, by natural transition, he went on to mention the artist's equally incomprehensible boast that he could fast for much longer than he was doing. He praised the high ambition, the goodwill, the great self-denial undoubtedly implicit in such a statement, and then quite simply countered it by bringing out photographs, which were also on sale to the public, showing the artist on the 40th day of a fast lying in bed almost dead from exhaustion. This perversion of the truth, familiar to the artist, always unnerved him afresh and proved too much for him. What was a consequence of the premature ending of his fast was here presented as the cause of it. To fight against this lack of understanding, against a whole world of non-understanding, was impossible. Time and again in good faith, he stood by the bars, listening to the impresario. But as soon as the photographs appeared, he always let go and sank with a groan back onto his straw as the reassured public could once more come close and gaze at him. A few years later, when the witnesses of such scenes called them to mind, they often failed to understand themselves at all. For meanwhile, an aforementioned change in public's interests had set in. It seemed to happen almost overnight. There may have been profound causes for it, but who is going to bother about that? At any rate, the pampered hunger artist suddenly found himself deserted one fine day by the amusement seekers, who went streaming past him to other more favorite attractions. For the last time, the impresario hurried him over half Europe to discover whether the old interest might still survive here and there, all in vain. As if by secret agreement, a positive revulsion from professional fasting was in evidence. Of course, it could not have sprung up so suddenly as all that and many premonitory symptoms which had not been sufficiently remarked or suppressed during the rush and glitter of success now came retrospectively to mind. But it was now too late to take any countermeasures. Fasting would surely come into fashion again, 
at some future date. Yet that was no comfort for those living in the present. What then was the hunger artist to do? He had been appalled by thousands in his time and could hardly come down from showing himself in the street booth at village fairs. As for adopting another profession, he was not only too old for that, but too fanatically devoted to fasting. So he took leave of the empresario, his partner in an unparalleled career, and hired himself to a large circus. In order to spare his own feelings, he avoided reading the conditions of his contract. A large circus with its enormous traffic and replacing and recruiting men, animals, and apparatus can always find a use for people at any time, even for a hunger artist. Provided, of course, that he does not ask too much. And in this particular case, it was not only the artist who was taken on, but his famous and long-known name as well. Indeed, considering the particular nature of his performance, which was not impaired by advancing age, it could not be objected that here was an artist past his prime, no longer at the height of his professional skill, seeking a refuge in some quiet corner of a circus. On the contrary, the hunger artist averred that he could fast as well as ever, which was entirely credible. He even alleged that if he were allowed to fast as he liked, and this was at once promised him without more ado, he could astound the world by establishing a record never yet achieved, a statement that certainly provoked a smile among the other professionals, since it left out of account the change in public opinion, which the hunger artist in his zeal conveniently forgot. He had not, however, actually lost his sense of the real situation, and took it as a matter of course that he and his cage should be stationed not in the middle of the ring as the main attraction, but outside, near the animal cages, on a site that was, after all, easily accessible. Large and gaily painted placards made a frame for the cage, and a nounce was to be seen inside. When the public came thronging out of the intervals to see the animals, they could hardly avoid passing the hunger artist's cage and stopping there for a moment. Perhaps they might even have stayed longer, had not those pressing behind them in the narrow gangway, who did not understand why they should be held up on their way towards the excitements of the menagerie, made it impossible for anyone to stand gazing for any length of time. And that was the reason why the hunger artist, who had of course been looking forward to these visiting hours as the main achievement of his life, began instead to shrink from them. At first, he could hardly wait for the intervals, it was exhilarating to watch the crowds come streaming his way, until only too soon. Not even the most obstinate self-deception could hold out against the fact that these people, most of them, to judge from their actions again and again, without exception, were all on their way to the menagerie, and the first sight of them from a distance remained the best. For when they reached his cage, he was at once deafened by the storm of shouting and abuse that arose from the two contending factions which renewed themselves continuously. Of those who wanted to stop and stare at him, he soon began to dislike them more than the others, not out of real interest, but only out of obstinate self-assertiveness, and those who wanted to go on straight to the animals. When the first great rush was passed, the stragglers came along, and these whom nothing could have prevented them from stopping to look at him as long as they had breath, raced past with long strides hardly even glancing at him, in their haste to get to the menagerie in time. And all too rarely did it happen that he had a stroke of luck when some father of a family fetched up before him with his children, pointed a finger at the hunger artist, and explained at length what the phenomenon meant, telling stories of earlier years when he himself 
had watched similar but more thrilling performances. And the children, still rather uncomprehending, since neither inside or outside school had they been sufficiently prepared for this lesson. What did they care about fasting? Yet showed by the brightness of their intent eyes that new and better times might be coming. Perhaps, said the hunger artist to himself, things would be a little better if his cage were not so quite near the menagerie. That made it too easy for people to make their choice, to say nothing of what he suffered from the stench of the menagerie. The animal's restlessness by night, the carrying past of raw lumps of flesh for the beasts of prey, the roaring at feeding times depressed him continually. But he did not dare to lodge a complaint with the management. After all, he had the animals to thank for the troops of people who passed his cage, among whom there might always be one here and there to take an interest in him, and who could tell where they might seclude him if he called attention to his existence, and thereby to the fact Strictly speaking, he was only an impediment on the way to the menagerie. A small impediment to be sure, one that grew steadily less. People grew familiar with a strange idea that they could be expected in times like these to take an interest in the hunger artist. And with this familiarity, the verdict went out against him. He might fast as much as he could, and he did so. But nothing could save him now. People passed by him. Just try to explain to anyone the art of fasting. Anyone who has no feeling for it cannot be made to understand it. The fine placards grew dirty and illegible. They were torn down. The little notice board showing the number of fast days achieved had now stayed at the same figure. For after the first few weeks, even this small task seemed pointless to the staff. And so the artist simply fasted on and on as he had once dreamed of doing. And it was no trouble to him, just as he had always foretold, but no one counted the days. No one, not even the artist himself, knew what records he was already breaking. And his heart became heavy. And when once in a while, some leisurely passerby stopped, made merry over the old figure on the board and spoke of swindling. That was in its way the stupidest lie ever intended by indifference and inborn malice. Since it was not the hunger artist who was cheating, he was working honestly, but the world was cheating him of his reward. Many more days went by, and that too came to an end. An overseer's eye fell on the cage one day, and he asked the attendants why this perfectly good cage should be left standing there, unused, with dirty straw inside. Nobody knew, until one man, helped out by the notice board, remembered about the hunger artist. They poked into the straw with sticks and found him in it. Are you fasting? Asked the overseer. What on earth do you mean to stop? Forgive me, everybody, whispered the hunger artist. Only the overseer, who had his ear to the bars, understood him. Of course, said the overseer, and tapped his forehead with a finger to let the attendants know what state the man was in. We forgive you. I always wanted you to admire my fasting, said the hunger artist. We do admire it, said the overseer affably. But you shouldn't admire it, said the hunger artist. Well, then we don't admire it, said the overseer. But why shouldn't we admire it? Because I have to fast. I can't help it, said the hunger artist. What a fellow you are, said the overseer. And why can't you help it? Because, said the hunger artist, 
lifting his head a little and speaking, with his lips pursed as if for a kiss, right into the overseer's ear, so that no syllable might be lost. Because I couldn't find the food I liked. If I had found it, believe me, I should have made no fuss and stuffed myself like you or anyone else. These are his last words, but in his dimming eyes remained the firm thought that he was still continuing to fast. We'll clear this out now, said the overseer. And they buried the hunger artist, straw and all. Into the cage they put a young panther. Even the most insensitive felt it refreshing to see this wild creature leaping around the cage that had so long been dreary. The panther was all right. The food he liked was brought to him without hesitation by the attendants. He seemed to not even miss his freedom. His noble body furnished almost to the bursting point with all that it needed. Seemed to carry freedom around with it too. Somewhere in his jaws it seemed to lurk and the joy of life streamed with such ardent passion from his throat for that the onlookers it was not easy to stand the shock of it. But they braced themselves, crowded around the cage, and did not ever want to move away. loved that story and I've loved the darker tone of it. I love Franz Kafka. A lot of his stuff have a very similar feeling to it and I really love that in this case it is about a man who is unable to change compared to one of his more famous novels uh, Metamorphosis which is all about change. In this one, it's about who can't change. And the fact that he chose his career path, a hunger artist, because he didn't like food. Or rather, he didn't find food that he enjoyed. Which is sad and tragic. And I think it is an excellent, excellent story. And one that we should all hear. The next story is going to be To Be or Not To Be by Kurt Vonnegut, read by Duncan Coe. Everything was perfectly swell. There were no prisons, no slums, no insane asylums, no cripples, no poverty, no wars. All diseases were conquered. So was old age. Death, barring accidents, was an adventure for volunteers. The population of the United States was stabilized at 40 million souls. One bright morning in the Chicago Lying-In Hospital, a man named Edward K. Welling Jr. waited for his wife to give birth. He was the only man waiting. Not many people were born a day anymore. Welling was 56, a mere stripling in a population whose average age was 129. X-rays had revealed that his wife was going to have triplets, 
the children would be his first. Young Welling was hunched in his chair, his head in his hand. He was so rumpled, so still and colorless, as to be virtually invisible. His camouflage was perfect, since the waiting room had a disorderly and demoralized air too. Chairs and ashtrays had been removed away from the walls. The floor was paved with spattered drop cloth. The room was being redecorated. It was being redecorated as a memorial to a man who had volunteered to die. A sardonic old man, about 200 years old, sat on a stepladder painting a mural he did not like. Back in the days when people aged visibly, his age would have been guessed at 35 or so. Aging had touched him that much before the cure for aging was found. The mural he was working on depicted a very neat garden. Men and women in white, doctors and nurses turned the soil, planted seedlings, sprayed bugs, spread fertilizer. Men and women in purple uniforms pulled up weeds, cut down plants that were old and sickly, raked leaves, carried red fuse to trash burners. Never, 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 not even in medieval Holland or old Japan had a garden been more formal, been better tended. Every plant had all the loam, light, water, air, and nourishment it could use. A hospital orderly came down the corridor, singing under his breath a popular song. If you don't like my kisses, honey, here's what I will do. I'll go see a girl in purple, kiss this sad world toodaloo. If you don't want my lovin', why should I take up all this space? I'll get off this old planet, let some sweet baby have my place. The orderly looked in at the mural and the muralist. Looks so real, he said. I can practically imagine I'm standing in the middle of it. What makes you think you're not in it? said the painter. He gave a satiric smile. It's called the Happy Garden of Life, you know. That's good of Dr. Hitz, said the orderly. He was referring to one of the male figures in white, whose head was a portrait of Dr. Benjamin Hitz, the hospital's chief obstetrician. Hitz was a blindingly handsome man. A lot of faces still to fill in, said the orderly. He meant that the faces of many of the figures on the mural were still blank. All blanks were to be filled with portraits of important people on either the hospital staff or from the Chicago office of the Federal Bureau of Termination. Must be nice to be able to make pictures that look like something, said the orderly. The painter's face curdled with scorn. You think I'm proud of this daub, he said. You think this is my idea of what life really looks like? What's your idea of what it looks like, said the orderly. The painter gestured at a foul drop cloth. There's a good picture of it, he said. Frame that and you'll have a picture a damn sight more honest than this one. You're a gloomy old duck, aren't you, said the orderly. Is that a crime, said the painter. The orderly shrugged. If you don't like it here, Grandpa, he said, and he finished the thought with the trick telephone number that people who didn't want to live anymore were supposed to call. The zero in the telephone number he pronounced not. The number was 2B or not 2B. It was the telephone number of an institution whose fanciful sobriquets included Automat, Birdland, 
Canary, Catbox, DeLouser, Easy Go, Goodbye Mother, Happy Hooligan, Kiss Me Quick, Lucky Pierre, Sheep Dip, Warning Blender, Weep No More, and Why Worry. To Be or Not to Be was the telephone number of the Municipal Gas Chambers of the Federal Bureau of Termination. The painter thumbed his nose at the orderly. When I decide it's time to go, he said, it won't be at the sheep dip. A do-it-yourselfer, eh? said the orderly. Messy business, Grandpa. Why don't you have a little consideration for the people who have to clean up after you? The painter expressed with an obscenity his lack of concern for the tribulations of his survivors. The world could do with a good deal more mess, if you ask me, he said. The orderly laughed and moved on. Welling, the waiting father mumbled something without raising his head, and then he fell silent again. A coarse, formidable woman strode into the waiting room on spike heels. Her shoes, stockings, trench coat, bag, and overseas cap were all purple. The purple, the painter called, the color of grapes on Judgment Day. The medallion on her purple musette bag was the seal of the service division of the Federal Bureau of Termination, an eagle perched on a turnstile. The woman had a lot of facial hair, an unmistakable mustache, in fact. A curious thing about gas chamber hostesses was that no matter how lovely and feminine they were when recruited, they all sprouted mustaches within five years or so. Is this where I'm supposed to come? she said to the painter. A lot would depend on what your business was, he said. You aren't about to have a baby, are you? They told me I was supposed to pose for some picture, she said. My name's Leora Duncan. She waited. Er, and you dunk people, he said. What? she said. Skip it, he said. That sure is a beautiful picture, she said. Looks just like heaven or something. Or something, said the painter. He took a list of names from his smock pocket. Duncan, 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 he said, scanning the list. Yes, here you are. You're entitled to be immortalized. See any faceless body here you'd like me to stick your head on? We've got a few choice ones left. She studied the mural bleakly. Gee, she said, they're all the same to me. I don't know anything about art. A body's a body, eh? He said, alrighty. As a master of fine art, I recommend this body here. He indicated a faceless figure of a woman who was carrying dried stalks to a trash burner. Well, said Leora Duncan, that's more the disposal piece of people, isn't it? I mean, I'm in service. I don't do any disposing. The painter clapped his hands in mock delight. You say you don't know anything about art, and then you prove in the next breath that you know more about it than I do. Of course, the sheave carrier is wrong for a hostess. A snipper, a pruner, that's more your line. He pointed to a figure in purple who was sawing a dead branch from an apple tree. How about her, he said. You like her at all? Gosh, she said, and she blushed and became humble. That, that puts me right next to Dr. Hitz. That upsets you, he said. Good gravy, no, she said. It's, it's just such an honor. Ah, you, you admire him, eh, he said. Who doesn't admire him, she said, worshipping the portrait of Hitz. It was the portrait of a tanned, white-haired, omnipotent Zeus, 240 years old. Who doesn't admire him, she said again. He was responsible for setting up the very first gas chamber in Chicago. 
Nothing would please me more, said the painter, than to put you next to him for all time, sawing off a limb that strikes you as appropriate. That is kind of like what I do, she said. She was demure about what she said. What she did was make people comfortable while she killed them. And while Leora Duncan was posing for her portrait, into the waiting room bounded Dr. Hitz himself. He was seven feet tall, and he boomed with importance, accomplishments, and the joy of living. Well, Miss Duncan, Miss Duncan, he said, and he made a joke. What are you doing here, he said. This isn't where people leave, this is where they come in. We're going to be in the same picture together, she said shyly. Good, said Dr. Hitz heartily, and say, isn't that some picture? I sure am honored to be in it with you, she said. Let me tell you, he said, I'm honored to be in it with you. Without women like you, this wonderful world we've got wouldn't be possible. He saluted her and moved toward the door that led to the delivery rooms. Guess what was just born, he said. I can't, she said. Triplets, he said. Triplets, she said. She was exclaiming over the legal implications of triplets. The law said that no newborn child could survive unless the parents of the child could find someone who would volunteer to die. Triplets, if they were all to live, called for three volunteers. Do the parents have three volunteers? said Leora Duncan. Last I heard, said Dr. Hitz, they had one and were trying to scrape another two up. I don't think they made it, she said. Nobody's made three appointments with us. Nothing but singles going through today, unless somebody called in after I left. What's the name? Welling, said the waiting father, sitting up, red-eyed and frowsy. Edward K. Welling, Jr. is the name of the happy father-to-be. He raised his right hand, looked at a spot on the wall, gave a hoarsely wretched chuckle. Present, he said. Oh, Mr. Welling, said Dr. Hitz. I didn't see you. The Invisible Man, said Welling. They just phoned me that your triplets have been born, said Dr. Hitz. They're all fine, and so is the mother. I'm on my way to see them now. Hooray said Welling emptily. You don't sound very happy, said Dr. Hitz. What man in my shoes wouldn't be happy, said Welling. He gestured with his hands to symbolize carefree simplicity. All I have to do is pick out which one of the triplets is going to live, then deliver my maternal grandfather to the happy hooligan and come back here with a receipt. Dr. Hitz became rather severe with Welling, towered over him. You don't believe in population control, Mr. Welling? He said. I think it's perfectly keen, said Welling tautly. Would you like to go back to the good old days when the population of the earth was 20 billion, about to become 40 billion, then 80 billion, then 160 billion? Do you know what a druplet is, Mr. Welling? said Hitz. Nope, said Welling sulkily. A druplet, Mr. Welling, is one of the little knobs, one of the little pulpy grains of a blackberry, said Dr. Hitz. Without population control, human beings would now be packed on this surface of this old planet like droplets on a blackberry. Think of it. Welling continued to stare at the same spot on the wall. In the year 2000, said Dr. Hitz, before scientists stepped in and laid down the law, there wasn't enough drinking water to go around, and nothing to eat but seaweed, and still people insisted on their right to reproduce like jackrabbits, and their right, if possible, to live forever. I want those kids, said Welling quietly. I want all three of them. Of course you do, said Dr. Hitz. That's only human. 
I don't want my grandfather to die either, said Welling. Nobody's really happy about taking a close relative to the cat box, said Dr. Hitz gently, sympathetically. I wish people wouldn't call it that, said Leora Duncan. What? said Dr. Hitz. I wish people wouldn't call it the cat box and things like that, she said. It gives people the wrong impression. You're absolutely right, said Dr. Hitz. Forgive me. He corrected himself, gave the municipal gas chambers their official title, a title no one ever used in conversation. I should have said, Ethical Suicide Studios, he said. That sounds so much better, said Leora Duncan. This child of yours, whichever one you decide to keep, Mr. Welling, said Dr. Hitz, he or she is going to live on a happy, roomy, clean, rich planet, thanks to population control. In a garden like the mural there, he shook his head, two centuries ago when I was a young man, it was a hell that nobody thought could last another 20 years. Now centuries of peace and plenty stretch before us as far as the imagination cares to travel. He smiled luminously. The smile faded as he saw that Welling had just drawn a revolver. Welling shot Dr. Hitz dead. There's room for one, a great big one, he said. And then he shot Leora Duncan. It's only death, he said to her as she fell. There, room for two. And then he shot himself, making room for all three of his children. Nobody came running. Nobody seemingly heard the shots. The painter sat on the top of his stepladder, looking down reflectively on the sorry scene. The painter pondered the mournful puzzle of life, demanding to be born, and once born, demanding to be fruitful, to multiply and to live as long as possible, to do all that on a very small planet that wouldn't have to last forever. All the answers that the painter could think of were grim, even grimmer surely than a cat box, a happy hooligan, an easy go. He thought of war, he thought of plague, he thought of starvation. He knew that he would never paint again. He let his paintbrush fall to the drop cloths below. And then he decided he had had about enough of life in the happy garden of life too. And he came slowly down from the ladder. He took Welling's pistol, really intending to shoot himself. But he didn't have the nerve. And then he saw the telephone booth in the corner of the room. He went to it, dialed the well-remembered number to be or not to be. Federal Bureau of Termination, said the very warm voice of the hostess. How soon could I get an appointment? He asked, speaking very carefully. We could probably fit you in late this afternoon, sir, she said. It might even be earlier if we get a cancellation. All right, said the painter. Fit me in, if you please. And he gave her his name, spelling it out. Thank you, sir, said the hostess. Your city thanks you, your country thanks you, your planet thanks you, but the deepest thanks of all is from future generations. Now I also love the story, and I chose it because it pairs very well with A Hunger Artist. To me, they have very similar themes. Themes of life and death, obviously, um, but also boredom. And we all feel boredom all the time. 
and I know when I'm bored, things seem worse than they are. But maybe if I make a change, things will be different. And that's going to conclude our show for tonight, folks. If you have a story that you wrote that you think would be a perfect fit for this show, please send that to spectrovisionpod at gmail.com. That is S-P-C-E-R-A-V-I-S-I-O-N-P-O-D at gmail.com. I would also like to say a very hearty thank you to all the artists and musicians who put their music out in the Creative Commons. If you liked anything you heard, please check out the description of this episode. All the credits are in there. Please check out those artists' pages and support them. In conclusion, I want to remind all of you out there to keep your mind's eye open. And until next time, this is Spectrovision. Vision.